0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: This
2: is the WA Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Radio WA.
1: And a very good afternoon to you. Very glad you could spend some time here on the Country Hour today. Shortly we're heading overseas where farmers are protesting right across Europe and they are now hopeful that a policy to set aside 4% of their arable land will be delayed and allow them to plant more crops. Now, what that means, if it happens, is an extra 50 million hectares of cropping going in the ground and clearly has flow-on effects for the grain market and prices right around the world, including here in Western Australia, of course. Also today, just after the news headlines at half past 12 today, you are going to take a look at the all-new modern high-tech wool handling business that Elders launched just last night at Rockingham, just south of Perth, will take you there and you can have a really good look at it just for yourself. Six past twelve here on The Country Hour on the ABC right across Western Australia. Streaming live on the web and on the ABC Listen app. Well, almost two weeks after the MV Bahija was ordered back to Australia, it remains at the port of Fremantle, which is a real source of frustration for both animal activists and the agriculture industry. The regulator, the Federal Department of Agriculture, ordered the livestock vessel to return to Australia after it diverted off its course to the Middle East due to security concerns in the Red Sea. Now, everyone is waiting as the regulator decides the future of the 15,000 livestock on board the vessel. The RSPCA's Chief Science Officer, Dr Suzanne Fowler, is calling for the sheep and the cattle to be released in Australia.
0: Day by day, as those animals stay on that ship,
3: their stress and fatigue is getting worse. If you think about yourself, when you're stressed and fatigued for 30 days running, sooner or later that starts to break you and you can no longer cope with the underlying stress that your body's suffering and you generally get sick. We know that that happens in humans and unfortunately it will happen with these animals as well.
1: The WA Farmers Federation says the Federal Agriculture Minister, Murray Watt, has failed to adequately manage the MV Bahesia Murray-Watt's office says the Minister is legally unable to intervene in the Department's actions and says the exporter is responsible for delaying its application to deploy on another voyage. WA Farmers President John Hassel says the Minister and the Department needed to do more.
2: Murray-Watt hasn't been over here, hasn't answered us whether he's going to meet with us, uh, doesn't seem to be involved in the decision-making at all. I think the, the department has been very slow. They've taken nine days to make a decision. I think that's pretty despicable. The ship should have got back here, dealt with and gone, you know, four days before now.
1: Jackie Jarvis is WA's Agriculture Minister. Jackie Jarvis, great to have you in the Country Hour studio. What is the latest on the plan for the livestock on board the MV Bahija?
4: So, Belinda, the, the ship is actually at birth at the moment. Is my understanding it's taking on fresh provisions, feed, water, bedding, and um, Uh, And that's that's my current understanding. I uh, understand that that DAF will make a decision about uh, stocking densities um, and at that point then some animals may may discharge the boat.
1: And how many sheep and cattle may need to come off the vessel?
4: Look, that's discussion between the exporter and and the the Commonwealth Department um, so that they can agree on on what stocking density they want moving forward.
1: Is it definitely going to make its way back to... Middle Eastern markets to Israel, is my understanding?
4: Look, my understanding was I, I received a briefing from the Commonwealth Government on Monday and, uh, and at, at that meeting uh, they certainly indicated that they, they were happy to see the majority of those animals uh, to re, you know take off on the new voyage. Uh, stocking density was something they were looking at at that stage.
1: Now, I'm told there is another possible plan for the livestock on board this vessel, which would see them shipped over to Victoria and processed in that state. Is that still an
4: option on the table? Not that I'm aware of. I mean, I think in all of this, uh, we haven't heard from the exporter who is, is the owner of the animals. Um, I believe that was a scenario that, that was being floated around. One of the, the issues I found is there's a, you know, WA farmers are doing a great job advocating for the industry, but there, there is a lot of, uh, Rumour, innuendo, I've heard this, I've heard that. Um, as I said, you know, it, this is a matter between the exporter, who, who's ultimately the owner and responsible for the animals, and, and the Commonwealth Department. So whilst, but you're pointing the
1: finger at industry here in WA as the problem.
4: Oh, not as a problem, no, just as part of the, the, working through the solution. So, look, there may well have been an option, you know, the exporter may well have wanted to, to send them Victoria. I'm not privy to what arrangements were made. There were certainly lots of options being being thrown around. Um, Look, I think WA Farmers, I've got a great relationship with them. I've been on the phone to them. I think they are quite rightly advocating for their sector. I guess none of us are privy to those discussions between the exporter and the Commonwealth.
1: So the RSPCA wants all of the livestock offloaded. Is that still an option?
4: I wouldn't see a need for that. I think, you know, we've, we've got a vet on board, plus we've had two independent vets, Uh, The animals are healthy and happy as far as I'm aware. The photographs look great. My WA chief vet is in regular contact with the boat as well, um, you know, from a WA government point of view. Um, I did, you know, I did uh, media um, on Tuesday where there was a lot of, you know, Perth metropolitan journalists who perhaps don't understand agriculture and I, I did make the point to them. A lot of these animals were in a feedlot on land before they went on a feedlot on a boat, and if they were to come on, they would go into feedlot conditions. The, the situation on board is, is a feedlot condition. Um, and so I, I appreciate that this is a highly emotive issue for lots of people, and I appreciate that RSPCA have a point of view and they do represent the views of, of a number of people. Um,
1: but you don't agree with the RSPCA's view on this occasion?
4: Well, I, I don't see... A need for all of those animals to come off the ship. We know that there is a small biosecurity risk. It is small, um, but these animals were intended to reach a particular market, and um, as long as the Commonwealth is happy with with the you know what the stocking density is, I see no reason why these animals who are healthy, who have had three vets now look at them. They've got an onboard vet. The WHE vet is in regular contact with with the livestock um, agent and the and the vet on board. Um, I don't see any reason why if these animals are, are healthy, which they are, that, that the majority of them can, can't continue. So if, the that is,
1: if that is approved, that, that um, plan to export them around Africa back to the Middle East markets to Israel, that would be over, you know, around about 60 days that and they would be on board. And you, you're quite happy with that.
4: My understanding is that is why the Commonwealth has wanted to change the stocking densities.
1: Right, but you're happy with them being on, on board the ship for 60 days? As I said, they're in feedlot conditions. Yep. Okay, so you're happy with that. Okay. Now, should this voyage have been allowed to continue its journey around Africa in the first place? Because that's, the exporter made that decision to divert away from the Red Sea, then it started its trip around Africa, which is always the contingency plan, then the regulator said, no, you need to return home. I mean, that vessel would have already, almost in a couple of days, have been at its market.
4: As you point out, Belinda, it is a very long journey and I absolutely respect the decision to... to Bring that that ship back to Australia so that we could address any animal welfare concerns. As it turns out, there were no animal welfare concerns. But my understanding is, is an independent regulator, and it's important to remember the regulatory regime through the Department of Agriculture, Food is not a ministerial direction. You know, there is a regulator who makes a decision based on on the science and the information. And to how add. well do
1: you think they've handled it? Because I mean, this ship was told it had to turn around. The regulator told it to turn around. On the 20th of January, it's now the 2nd of February, shouldn't contingency plans have been started from that point, the 20th of January? If the animals are sick, we do this. If they're healthy, we do this.
4: Absolutely. And as you're aware, owners of the livestock, whether they're on land or on a boat, are responsible for the animal welfare. So I'm not, as I said, I'm not privy to what information the exporter was giving to the Commonwealth. Um, But should
1: it have taken this amount of time? We still uh, don't have
4: a plan. uh, my, My... I've been saying from from the start of the week, I want this matter resolved as quickly as possible. I mean, there was an opportunity to birth on Tuesday. For whatever reason, that, that didn't eventuate. And let's remember as well, if you're moving animals, the logistics, particularly when there's a biosecurity concern, the logistics of moving large numbers of livestock you know, are quite onerous. You obviously need to have trucks available. You need to have adequate washdown facilities that are, that are you know, in a, at a relatively, you know, isolated biosecurity area. There needs to be provisions to make sure those animals are going to an approved facility so they can be re-exported. So I, I'm not critical of the exporter. I'm saying there are logistics involved. Are you critical of the regulator? Look, I, I, I'm not privy to what information the regulator had. I want this matter resolved as a matter of urgency. But up until this
1: point, how would you describe how the regulator has handled this situation.
4: As I said, I can't make a judgment call on those public servants because I don't know what information they've been waiting for, whether it's an animal welfare plan or biosecurity plans. I, I'm not going to pass judgment on, on public servants who are following legislation and may well have required more information. I mean, I think that's their, their statements are that they've been waiting for information from the exporter, I, I, you know, I think at the start of the week, um, perhaps the exporter would have liked to have been able to just reprovision and carry on the journey and not uh, not uh, reduce stocking densities. Um, the the requirement to then perhaps re- reduce stocking densities creates, as I said, some logistical challenges. So I'm not going to because I'm not aware. We've heard from one side. Yeah. Um, I, I haven't spoken to the exporter. But would I don't you know. have
1: expected an answer, a plan to be revealed sooner think than this?
4: Everybody. I think everybody would have liked this matter resolved earlier. One of my concerns is this this is playing out in the global media. As I said, I've, I've had media inquiries. I've, I've done media every day on this since Tuesday. This has been um, on CNN news in the US. So this, how is Western BBC Australia being reflected yeah, look, by it's, this situation? It's, it's difficult for our farming um, industries because this has played out for probably longer than anyone would have liked. As I said, I'm not privy to why that situation has happened. Um, And what I do know is there's been lots of rumour and innuendo. And as you said, oh, well, maybe they're going to go to Victoria. Maybe they're they're all going to stay on board. Maybe they're just going to reprovision. Um, It's... it's we don't, none of us at this stage are fully aware of the chain of events between both the exporter and, and the Commonwealth, and I think it's, I don't want to pass judgment on an independent regulatory process that's, that, that's handled at a Commonwealth level.
1: 16 past 12 here on the Country Hour on the ABC. In the studio, the State Agriculture Minister, Jackie Jarvis, with the latest on the future for the livestock on board, the MV Bahesia which is in the port of Fremantle. Uh, Jackie Jarvis, one concern that keeps coming up from industry is if the Federal Department, the regulator, can't manage a potential biosecurity breach, how prepared is it to manage a real threat, a real foot-and-mouth disease outbreak, a lumpy skin disease outbreak? Because they're looking at this situation and thinking they're just basically sitting on their hands not handling it. So do you think they'd be prepared for actually a real biosecurity threat? In this country. A-
4: absolutely. So the issue here is, is as I said, this, the, the animals were safe and happy where they were and the exporter was, was requested, my understanding, um, to, to make provisions to transport those animals in a biosecurity safe manner. That takes a few days logistics. The same thing would happen if we had a biosecurity issue on a farm you know, we contain the risk, we stop the spread, as we said, during COVID. So there are logistical challenges, but animal welfare has been paramount for all parties. Um, The exporter wants safe, happy, healthy animals, the buyer wants safe, happy, healthy animals, and so does the department. So the biosecurity risk is incredibly low. I should mention it was industry who was raising the concerns about biosecurity at the start of the week. But you would have had rightly.
1: biosecurity concerns too, wouldn't you? A absolutely. Level?
4: I did get a briefing that the, the risk was relatively low. There is still a risk though. I mean, the, the animals have not disembarked anywhere. The risk was from a, a vector, a, a mosquito carrying something like lumpy skin disease. So the risk was low. So we were managing a low-risk biosecurity issue and I absolutely understand why industry said we need to make sure that we manage this in a biosecurity safe manner but the animals were healthy and happy were inspected had no signs of disease despite what others might say the animals are not sick have never been sick so i understand that industry want to make sure this is biosecurity that takes time and if you have a biosecurity threat whether it's on land whether it's in a feedlot or whether it's on a ship the first thing is you do is you you make sure that is contained and then you make sure that whatever movement of animals follows a very clearly defined biosecurity plan.
1: Some really mixed messaging from your Labor Party colleagues too. Labor's independent MP for Fremantle, Josh Wilson, saying the trade involves unacceptable risks to animal welfare. The federal government has a policy to phase out the sheep trade by sea and at the state level you and the Premier keep saying that you support the trade. How should industry be Interpreting these different messages and and viewing Labor's attitude to farming,
4: the Labor Party is no different from broader society. There are differing views across you know across my friendship group. There are different views uh, across you know probably the networks that you're in, Belinda. People have differing views on this, um, and. The Labor Party is no different. Josh Wilson is a member of the federal government who took this to an election. And so he is taking the commitment that he took to his constituents. And let's remember, his constituents have a certain view. I'm the Minister for Agriculture in Western Australia. Has this situation changed your view at all on the future of live export? It hasn't changed my view, but what it has done, I am, I am concerned that um, the public of are seeing something that they they don't fully understand. I'm concerned that there are reports that these animals are sick when they are not. Um, and what's that
1: doing to the future of this industry? It's creating
4: uncertainty, and it, it's it's creating a, a a situation where the metropolitan punter is 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 perhaps thinking about this issue for the first time, and perhaps in a negative way, which is not what we want. So that's my concern: is that people perhaps you know, living in metropolitan Perth, who hadn't really thought... didn't have a view one way or the other, are concerned. And are now forming negative views. Potentially. Yeah.
1: Talk in industry circles is that this whole delay over a decision for the MV Bahesia is staged, feeding into the federal government's policy to phase out the trade.
4: What do you say to that? As as someone who's both worked in government as a public servant and and now as a minister, I I would say that's fanciful. This is... I, I mean, I think... Fundamentally, I don't think any farmer wants a a minister to have the power to make independent decisions on animal welfare or biosecurity. That is why we have regulators. I don't think any farmer wants a minister who has the power on a whim to make a a call on on an animal welfare issue. Um, What happens is there is a process and there is a regulator. None of us are privy to the exchanges between the exporter and, and the Commonwealth. But, look, I'm, as I said, I'm not going to, um, uh, you know, cast dispersions on, on public servants who are, who are administering the law.
1: When do you think this is going to be resolved? Because we have, as we're speaking today, there is a, a media conference underway with senior members of the, the department, the regulator, mm. uh, updating everyone on this situation. My understanding is there is no plan that's being revealed what what information is being revealed during this conference, the uh, media I, conference?
4: I don't know. I literally heard that there was going to be... Look, I've been in meetings all morning. I just heard that there was a... You know, my, my media advisor told me that the Commonwealth were, were holding a... A, um, but no
1: plan, not, not releasing a plan, just an update. Look,
4: and an update. So uh, the plan is, is in the hands of the exporter. So the exporter is, is the owner of the cattle. But the, the regulator has to approve it. Absolutely. And look, I don't know where they're at with that. I'm not privy to those discussions. Um, I would hope, as I said, I want this matter resolved as quickly as possible. I certainly do not think this should be dragging over the weekend. I think we need a... Today? You uh, think it might uh, be resolved? It would, it, it would be fantastic. The ship is in the, in, at berth now. Um, now would be the time, if, if animals were to come off, obviously the sooner the better. Jackie Jarvis, thank you for being in the country, our studio. I really appreciate thank, it. Thank you, Belinda.
1: Jackie Jarvis is the State Agriculture Minister with the very latest on the situation that's still unfolding, the MV Bahesia. Uh, two weeks ago it was ordered back to Australia. It remains at the port of Fremantle. We'll keep across that media conference that's underway right now just to see if there is any more detail to add. Um, And the Minister obviously hoping that's sorted as soon as possible. 23 past 12. On the text, if you'd like to be part of the conversation, have your say, zero double four eight nine double two six zero four. Terry in Esperance says, once again we see the complete incompetence of the government and its officers in dealing with the live export of sheep. To have ordered it to be turned around and returned to Australia was a terrible call. The animals could now be at their final destination. Political motivation in the decision... How many other ships around Australia have returned to their port of origin? Thank you, Terry. And this from Macca. The ship situation has inadvertently served as a case study showing that the ships are not inherently a risk to the health of the sheep. While not ideal, we can say to the Commonwealth after all this time at sea, and three vets say all is well. Zero double four eight nine double two six zero four if you'd like to text through and have your say. twenty three past twelve.
0: The WA Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Radio WA.
1: We'll check in with the news headlines at half past 12 and then a look at uh, the weather right around Western Australia. Um, but first we are going to head overseas. Farmers are protesting right around Europe at the moment. They have been for, well, two or three months or so. And they're now hopeful a policy to set aside 4% of their arable land will be delayed and allow them to plant more crops. It translates to an extra 50 million hectares of cropping going in the ground and clearly has flow-on effects for the grain market and your grain prices Andrew Whitelaw is the founder at episode3.net. Andrew, how does this set-aside policy actually
5: work? Hi, Belinda. Yeah, in Europe, set-aside has been around for a long time. It's a big part of their environmental programs and their subsidy regime that they have over there. And what it basically, at its most basic level, is farmers have to set aside 4% of their arable land or their cropping land to unproductive purposes so fallow effectively. So they can't grow a crop on 4% of the land. And so that is how they get their subsidies or a lot of their subsidies. But what's happened is the last three or four months, you might have seen, and I think you guys have covered it on ABC, a lot of farmer protests in Europe, a lot of tractors going down uh, the the sort of capital cities in, in European nations. And this is a proposed policy from the EU Commission is to temporarily, for one year, uh, get rid of this, set aside for four percent, and allow farmers to crop a hundred percent, and uh, and that's that is significant. What are the implications of that? If you look at Europe as a as a trading block, you're talking about fifty million hectares of cropping ground. So you're talking four percent might not sound like much, but it's significant, especially just to be put into action in a, in a short period of time. And so if, if I just take some sort of back of the uh, cigarette packet sort of numbers, potentially, you know, 5 million tonnes of wheat, potentially half a million to a million tonnes of canola, and that's a significant volume of grain to come onto the market.
1: Why is the EU considering this?
5: Yeah, so in, in part it's to sort of placate these protesters in Europe uh, farmers are, you know, same as in Australia, but probably worse over there. They are facing uh, significant increases in input costs, especially since the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And so their costs are rising. But at the same time, you know, we've got some fairly rampant food inflation over there. Like I was in the UK just in over Christmas, and I couldn't believe that it cost a beer two years ago, from £2.50 to £6.50. But... What this does is it puts more food onto the market, which has the potential of reducing the cost of food. So they're looking at it as a two pronged approach, placate farmers, placate consumers and allow that for a year. There is some caveats in that the farmers who want this exemption have to plant 7% of their crop to nitrogen fixing crops. So we may see an increase in some crops as well, like see lentils as an example, I think, would be one that they could go for, and peas. But it's a really interesting change because it has always been a sort of a thing that they would never touch, is a set-aside policy.
1: And the, the set-aside policy, as you were saying earlier, Andrew, there's, you know, payment to producers, to farmers who have that 4% of their land set aside, but obviously, the opportunity to plant crops is worth a lot more to those producers.
5: Yeah, I'm still waiting for. The, it'll be interesting to see the details and whether they still receive some form of subsidies in another manner. Uh, but it's it definitely has been a, a contentious point for farmers around the world. This level of subsidy, you know, if we look at Australia, uh, Australia is one of the least subsidised countries in the world in agriculture, with approximately you know one and a half percent of the average income coming from subsidies. And that's really just fuel excise, rebates and things like research funding.
1: How likely is it that the EU is going to approve this and and remove this
5: set-aside policy? Well, it seems like this is obviously only a temporary uh, reprieve for, for one year, for 2024, and the vote is due to come in in the next couple of days. Who knows, but I think it's got a fairly reasonable chance of success.
1: And what does it mean back here in Australia
5: for the industry for growers? Look, it's it's definitely one to watch for. I believe that Europe is always one to keep an eye on, especially in Western Australia for canola. If they do see huge acreages going in for canola this year, let's say that even on the low end, they produce another 500,000 tonnes of canola or rapeseed that reduces their demand for, for Australian canola. And uh, that has serious implications because we trade, you know, upwards of 60% of our canola will go to Europe on an average year.
1: So what could be the implications for prices then? Obviously downward pressure, but any kind of uh, scale of what we might be looking at?
5: Look, it's too early to say. This hasn't even gone through the parliament. But as we all know, uh, supply and demand is what drives markets. And if we have big supplies coming onto the marketplace, then... That only has downward pressure. Mm.
1: Well, it's definitely something for growers to be watching. I mean, we're just sort of in that preparation stage here in Australia, aren't we, looking at the season ahead and what to what to plant, what not to plant. Should this be a factor that farmers are considering?
5: Look, I think when we're looking at planting decisions, I think are one of the hardest things a farmer can do. The one thing I've always said to farmers is don't look at the price at seeding to help you decide that because... There's no real relationship between the price at seeding and the price at harvest. Speak to your agronomist and find out what is the best thing for you to grow. But forget about price. Look at the agronomics. What, what are you going to get the best yield for? What is going to support your soils the best? Because again, unless you're going to sell it straight away, the price at seeding has no relevance to the price at harvest.
1: Andrew, good to talk to you. Thank you.
5: Not any times, Belinda.
1: Andrew Whitelaw, he is a grain market analyst. He's a co-founder at episode3.net. 29 to 1 here on the Country Hour. Jonathan Hopper in the studio this afternoon with the news headlines.
6: Good afternoon, Belinda. The Maritime Workers' Union says it's reached an in-principle agreement with port operator DP World over an ongoing dispute around pain conditions. The agreement puts an end to months of work stoppages that have led to a backlog of goods waiting to be offloaded at the nation's ports. Premier Roger Cook has urged more caution around the export of live sheep over long distances during times of international insecurity. The MV Bahija, with more than 15,000 animals on board, was ordered to return to Australia due to escalating tensions in the Red Sea. But it has been left stranded off off WA's coast for days without a plan. An Indigenous advocate in the East Kimberley says any move from the Coalition to bring back the cashless debit card needs to be comprehensive and well-researched. The Labor Party scrapped the card in 2022 after it was trialled in some areas to try to reduce alcohol abuse and gambling by controlling welfare payments. Some Liberal MPs support reintroducing the card if they win government. Thanks, Belinda.
1: Jonathan, thank you for that update. It's 28 to 1 here on The Country on the ABCWA, streaming live on the web and on the ABC Listen app. Uh, earlier in the hour, Jackie Jarvis was here. She is WA's Agriculture Minister, and we're getting the very latest on, you know, the possibilities um, for the MV Bahesia, still sitting at the port of Fremantle with about 15,000 head of livestock, sheep and cattle on board. The regulator still not approving a plan for that livestock. And as I was speaking to the Minister, there was a media conference underway about this live export ship. Adam Fennessy was one of the speakers there. He is the Secretary of the Department of Agriculture, Fisheries and Forestries and here's one of the highlights from that media conference.
2: My department continues to assess the application to re-export the livestock provided by the exporter. I'd like to provide some information on the process. The decision maker in my department has an obligation to consider all relevant information from a range of sources on complex issues relating to export legislation, animal welfare considerations, and the requirements of our international trading partners. It's a complex process and this is a unique situation.
1: Yes, you heard it here first. That was the highlight from that media conference by the Department of Agriculture, Fisheries and Forestry, the regulator uh, for the livestock export industry. 27 to 1 here on the Country Hour. A um, couple of markets to get through between now and the news. At One, it's off to Mount Barker for the results of the cattle market. Danny Burkett will be along with the wool market details. And, of course, you are going to get up close and personal with this new modern high-tech wool handling business that was launched last night at Elders and you'll take a look around. Richard Hudson was there last night. He'll be in shortly to do the rainfall, the fire information, et cetera, and then you'll get a little bit of a an idea of what that means for the wool industry. First, though, off to the Bureau of Meteorology. Bob Tarr is with you this afternoon. Bob, should we start in northern and eastern parts of the state? What's the main feature on the map affecting conditions in that part of WA?
7: uh yeah so northern and eastern parts is really just a uh stagnant trough over inland areas um pretty inactive trough so there's a tropical low over the gulf of carpentaria and that's the main area where we're seeing a lot of rainfall over northern parts of the country but um yeah over the kimberley it's actually been really suppressed we did have a little bit of uh shower and thunderstorm activity over inland parts of the pilbara uh yesterday but um yeah aside from that uh kimberley is is very inactive for this time of year uh just maybe the odd shower storm over the next few days for mainly in, uh northern and western parts uh and then we could see a little bit of an increase As we go into the uh, middle to later part of next week, but uh, it's not really uh, probably getting back towards normal for this time of year, the amount of thunderstorm activity that we'll see at that point. So, yeah, it's very suppressed over the weekend uh, and also pretty hot over northern parts of the state, eastern areas uh, through the interior. uh, Not really much happening through there. Uh, It looks like the next few days will be dry uh, and over the southeast of the state will be becoming very hot uh, tomorrow into the Eucla but then we will have a cool change with the trough passage and uh, relatively mild weather as we go through much of next week in the Eucla.
1: And then moving into the southwest land division still pretty hot around most parts this afternoon but that's set to change what have you got Bob?
7: yeah so uh pretty hot's probably understating it for some places uh so today we've at Geraldton airport um which is a little bit inland from the town, so the the town site's maybe a few degrees uh cooler but uh Geraldton airport reached forty six point eight degrees uh that is the slightly hotter than yesterday, which is forty six point five um so today is the second hottest. Uh, February day on record for Geraldton. Uh, and it's the hottest temperature for any month in Geraldton since uh, December 1997. Um, a few more stats from yesterday Bridgetown uh, reached 42.6. That's the hottest February day since. 1940 and the hottest day uh, for over 30 years. Uh, Manjimup it's was 42.8, which is the highest February temp ever recorded, and the second hottest day on record for Manjimup. Uh, Katanning had its hottest February day for 30 years. Uh, Rocky Gully had its hottest day on on record, dating back 28 years. So um, yeah, quite a lot of hot temperatures, and that extended right through the Great Southern. So don't really have as many records for that region, but. Uh, Sterling Range was around 44, 45, Wagen 44, uh, Wellstead 44, um, Catanning 43, uh, Gerwood, and Donnybrook 42. So very hot yesterday. Today, uh, very hot through the Midwest. Uh, So as I said, Geraldton reached 46.8. Yesterday, Geraldton was probably the hottest observing site in the world uh, in is going to be today as well but uh northampton uh deeper site there reached 46.9 today Um, and uh, some other areas have been quite hot Uh, Esperance reached uh, close to 43 today Um, and uh, yeah as i said um, a lot of areas through the great southern not quite as hot as yesterday but still into the 40s today Uh, main area that's cooled off a little bit is the southwest corner so uh, bridgetown we are up around uh, 40 243 yesterday. Uh, currently, uh, it's only about uh, what is it? 36 in Bridgetown right now, so a little bit milder than yesterday. And, and out towards Market River, about 27, 28 degrees. So much cooler into the southwest corner. And uh, Albany is only about 20. 24, 25, uh, same with Denmark. So right along the south coast the sea breeze has come in and it's starting to come in uh, out towards Esperance uh, and also along the west coast but um, yeah, once that trough passes we will see a cooler change so most areas tomorrow will be significantly cooler. Exception will be over the northeast uh, part of the wheat belt and also Still quite hot tomorrow through the inland parts of the Midwest, as well as the gold fields will be quite hot tomorrow, uh, so we're still waiting on that trough passage. but uh, once we see that trough passage uh, through those areas on uh, later Saturday into Saturday night it will be uh, sharply. Uh, milder air mass, so uh, all areas through southern and western parts of the state should be below normal by Sunday, and that'll continue into Monday. Uh, And then we'll have a new trough deepening down the west coast as we go from Tuesday onward, so that'll start us back uh, climbing up the hill Uh, by the time we get out towards the uh, middle to later part of next week. uh, Areas through the Great Southern uh, and into the southwest corner are going to be probably uh, anywhere from about Uh, 6 to 14 degrees above normal as we get out towards next Friday. So it is going to become quite hot again the later part of next week, but we'll get a few days of uh, respite. There's not a lot of rainfall on the uh, forecast, but there is a bit of a mid-level feature that will move through the southwest corner uh, during Saturday. So we actually expect that we will have uh, some fairly widespread showers from that and the chance of thunderstorms. So it could get a few mils in some places, mainly to the south and west of a line from about Harvey out towards Israelite Bay. Um, most of that rainfall would be out from uh, around the southwest corner, though, and out towards Albany. Uh, the risk of uh, lightning ignitions from that is fairly low, as uh, or, or I suppose is, is significantly mitigated because there is going to be some rainfall and also it's going to be behind the trough, so the conditions will be much milder. And then a few showers could linger around the Esperance region into uh, Sunday, but otherwise we're expecting dry weather right through the forecast period.
1: Now, Bob, I don't know if you've got a station at West Banu, but Fiona's just text through saying it's 50 degrees at West Banu, so you can chalk that one up for the books too.
7: Yeah I think the I think the site might be a, a bit in the sunshine there but um, oh, yeah, it sounds but, yeah psychic, certain, it? certainly that region has been um, into the the high 40s so yeah uh, hope, hope they can stay cool there.
1: Yeah that's just north of Geraldton of course. Uh, warnings this afternoon what have
4: you got?
7: Yeah so we still have a, a heat wave warning um, but those will be dropping off significantly through the uh, southwest land division from tomorrow uh, but there still will be some heat wave warnings over uh, mainly northern parts of the state as we go through the weekend and into an early part of next week uh, we have a few marine wind warnings along the west coast uh, and then some fire weather warnings for the swan inland uh, swan Inlands north and south as well as brockman and blackwood fire weather districts tomorrow there's uh, likely to be some uh, fire weather warnings in total fire bans for uh, some areas in the Midwest and the Wheat Belt. Uh, and then the uh, flood warning that had been current for the Fitzroy River has been finalized.
1: Thank you so much, Bob. Appreciate that. 19 to 1. Richard Hudson just making his way into the studio now. He's got some fire information shortly, but we'll kick off with the rain. Much to report, Richard?
2: No, hardly anything. The only real rain was in the Kimberley. Theta had 9 and Udiala 11. And then in the Pilbara, Karagini North had a tiny bit of rain with 3 mils, and that's absolutely it. But because of those really hot weather conditions, a fair few shires have harvest bands in place. And so that's not only a ban on the harvesting itself, but it's also on the use of any equipment that could potentially start a fire. So the use of any engines, vehicles, plant machinery in paddocks. So the shires that have a harvest ban in place is Boy Up Brook, Donnybrook Bailing Up, Mundaring, City of Swan, Williams has just put one on, and Yalgoo. And if you're in doubt about that or if you want to know when they're going to be lifted, just get in touch with your shire. About seven fires burning in WA at the moment, all at an advice level. All the details are on the Emergency WA website. But again, because of those conditions, a fair few Shires have put a total fire ban in place. So today that's for a fair bit of the Perth metropolitan region. That's uh, Armadale, Chittering, Gin Gin, Gosnalls, Calamunda, Mundaring, Serpentine, Gerardale, and Swan. In the Goldfields Midlands region, it's for 2J. In the southwest, it's Collie, Dardenup, Harvey, Murray, Waruna. In the lower southwest, it's Boyup Brook, Bridgetown Greenbushes, Donnybrook Bailing Up. And in the great southern region, it's Boddington, West Arthur and Williams. If you're unsure or if you missed this announcement, just go to the Emergency WA website and they're all there. And if you're unsure as to what you can and can't do when a total five bands on, just search DFEST, D-F-E-S. D-F-E-S and total fire bans, and you'll get all the information you need.
1: 17 to 1 here on the Country i will get to the market shortly. We'll go through the Mount Barker cattle market and the wool market for you. First, though, Richard wants to tell you all about what he did last night. You're at a a wool function, Richard. What happened? Yeah, Elders officially
2: launched its new modern high-tech wool handling business at Rockingham, just south of Perth. And this is actually part of a $25 million national revamp of the way Elders is going to operate in the future. So up until recently, Elders' wool handling had been done by third-party operators, but when I checked out the Rockingham warehouse last night, it was pretty clear Elders now wants to be involved in the whole supply chain. It's all to do with trying to reduce costs, but also satisfying buyers' demands, One of the managers who played a big part in the company's revamp is Dave Adamson who says in some ways Elders is now going back to where it started from.
8: Yeah it is. Uh, You know 25 years ago we used to handle our clients wool and and we decided to create a joint venture which has done that you know for about the past 20 odd years and that was the piece that was missing for us being able to control you know the flow of wool from the sheds through to the ship And, and about five years ago we we looked at the commercials and the, and the um, opportunity to get back into it. Um, the industry's changed a lot, so we designed a model that uh, was fit for the industry today and that would put us in good stead in terms of managing costs into the future. Uh, and four years later, we've, we opened here at Rockingham in, in, in July last year and we opened in Melbourne at Ravenhall on the 2nd of January this year. So we're operating in, in the two locations and handling all of our clients well.
2: Why the big change? Because this would have cost a lot of money nationally.
8: Yeah, it's about a $25 million investment. Uh, and what we wanted to bring to the table was a bit of technology into the industry. You know, it's, it's, it's traditionally quite a traditional industry, wool. And, you know, there's been a lot of movement in the, in the automation space. Uh, these machines, as, as we've talked about, you and I previously, are brand new in terms of the way they operate. And we think they'll be the fastest machines in the world once we sort of get them finally tuned. Uh, we've we've developed a lot of or introduced a lot of automation into into Melbourne so we've sort of been able to make the shed a bit smaller uh, and operate on a sort of twenty-four hour basis and, and have the have the automation machines working all day and night moving the wall.
2: I believe Melbourne is quite incredible. Ravenhall, it's I heard it's about two and a half times the size of the MCG, which is a big, big operation and the use of not just technology but some robots, aren't they?
8: Yeah, there is. It's, it's 35,000 square meters of the shed. This one's about 11, Ryan, I think. And there's 22 what they call automated guided vehicles that uh, don't require a smoker or lunch. Yeah. And they work 24-7. They charge when they get the opportunity. And they, they move a bale at a time, stacking them up to 11 bales high. And, you know, they're going really well. No one's ever done that the way we're doing it in the world. Uh, and it's certainly starting to look like it's going to be a really, really impressive and efficient way of doing it. Is that going to be rolled out here in WA as well, do you think? Look, we need to bet it down there. The, the difference is the scale over there. So we're, we're handling about 300,000 bales there. We're, we're sort of looking at about 50 here, but we want to grow here. So once we get a bit more scale here and we think that'll come with this investment, um, we'll look to introduce some technology here.
2: Well, let's not downplay what's actually happening here right in this warehouse here in Rockingham. Ryan, you're in charge of this operation and behind us is quite a spectacular looking machine.
9: I've got no idea what it does. <laughs> what is it? Well, we, we call it a core machine. Um, it does our testing. It takes core samples from the bales, grabs samples from the bales, weighs the bales, keeps us honest, and that way we can send it to, to auction and with this, all the results.
2: And this is brand new?
9: Um, it is brand new, yes. It was brand new six months ago. Um, it is the first in the world. So it landed right here and here it is. It's a big beast. <laughs> we call think- it the big red dog.
2: <laughs> the big red dog. Have you figured out how to, work, how to use it
9: and operate it? We have. Um, between the clever people that work for me, um, all taking it in turns and, and just nutting things out, we have actually got this thing running better than the people that, that made it could. Wow. So we teach them how to use their own machine.
2: And okay. how is this going to improve things for the handling of the wool then?
9: Um, it's, it's about speed. Yep. Um, as, as Dave said, it's not up to its full speed, but we're fine-tuning it. What this gives us is six different stations doing six different parts of the testing process at one time, yep. rather than a traditional machine, which would be two to three stations doing the same process. Obviously, that will cut time and we'll get, be, be able to get bales out th- a lot faster. Getting them out faster means we actually free up staff members, means we can efficiently prepare wool for the next day's testing.
2: When you consider what's been happening in the news in the last week in Western Australia, it's been dominated by this live export ship. A lot of people who are not involved in the sheep industry would just be assuming it's all doom and gloom and the sheep industry's on its way down. And to hear that Elders is investing $25 at a time like this to turn this sort of facility going really high tech, what gives you the confidence now?
8: Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, our view is that the national clip has hopefully bottomed, but I think more importantly for us, for us, the industry needs an investment like this in it to drive some efficiency. The supply chain is quite long in the Australian wool industry, and there's a lot of costs associated with that. So what we're hoping to do is bring some technology that, that you know, I'm sure other people will adapt over time that will make it more efficient and more sustainable moving forward. One thing that intrigued me today
2: is you mentioned just how old Elders is, 185 years, and started in Adelaide where you're based. By the Elders family, I reckon back in those days they would have handled every single stage of the the wool process. You've done
8: a full circle. Pretty much, yeah, yeah. Um, You know, they had quite a big market share back then as well, but certainly, and very manual. You know, they were shipping bales up up and down the River Murray and and all kinds of things so yeah we have done a full circle we've gone back to you know owning that that supply chain for our clients from as i said before out of the shed right through to the ship yeah
2: what's going to be the biggest advantage is it purely cost savings of going down this channel
8: oh there's a there's a bit more than that so i mean long-term cost savings for us and our clients you know that that's what you know ultimately we'll 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 shoot for there's certainly Particularly in Melbourne, there's a lot, and you can see from this machine today, there's a lot of safety benefits. These machines are really, really safe. Sustainability, so both sites have got a a big um, solar system on the roof. We're gonna move to electric forklifts um, once we get up and running. Uh, traceability is another one so not so much in this site but in Melbourne you'll be able to see where every single bale is located in the shed uh, and you'll be able to pick a bale the machines will pick a bale for you at any point in time and deliver it to you so you know sustainability traceability uh, and cost efficiency you know that they're, the, they're and safety they're, they're really the four big drivers
2: and is elders rolling this out in every capital city where you're
8: currently based no, we, we, it's a real, really centralised model. So Western Australia and the rest of South Australia and the eastern states will come into Melbourne through a series of depots. So in terms of the growers dropping their wool off, that doesn't change much. They, they drop it to roughly where they dropped it before for an, for an elders' client. And then it comes into Melbourne which, uh, where it's cored and is shipped out of Melbourne. Most of Australia's wool, about 70 75% is shipped out of Melbourne anyway. Um, so we just sort of looked at that when we were designing the model and it made sense that, that, to base it there. We're pretty special, Ryan. We've got got one here and we have got one in Melbourne. Absolutely. Yep.
2: (laughs)
9: Very honoured to have one.
1: Dave Adamson is the General Manager of Agency for Elders and Ryan Fletcher is Western Australia's Wool Operations Manager. Speaking to Richard Hudson. Nine to one.
2: The WA Country Hour with Belinda Baraschetti on ABC Radio WA.
1: With the one highway that connects Kununurra to the rest of eastern Australia closed due to flooding, cotton growers in the Kimberley's Ord Valley have been pacing around anxiously. Their planting window is due to open any day now, but no one has been able to get cotton seed into Kununurra. Well, there is one person. Tommy Palmer has been able to get some seed in. He's with Cotton Grower Services She's with Cotton Grower Services in Kununurra. <laughs> a very stressful
3: afternoon and many a phone calls with our little team, um, you know, Catherine and Kununurra Darwin team. So I spoke to my manager, Pete Cottle, and I was like, we've got to get this over here ASAP. So a uh, Cessna caravan was organised and took two hours Because the Air Force were busy, (laughs) so the plane had to do a different route, but it got here yesterday afternoon and the window opens today when someone puts a seed in the ground, so (laughs) we could breathe (laughs) yesterday afternoon. How surreal was that experience going to the airport to pick up your cotton seed? Well, actually, the airport's not far from town, so you can hear when the planes are coming in, but I got the message... Uh, hooked up my trailer and the plane was flying in as I was driving into the driveway and I got directed to the the tarmac and, yeah, it felt quite unusual. <laughs> so they sent <laughs> you right out to meet the plane on the tarmac? Yeah, <laughs> and we loaded the seat on there uh, straight into the trailer from the from the plane. And as you say, the window for planting cotton is just about to open. Tell me, what's it looking like at the moment? Are paddocks dry enough to put cotton in just yet or will it take a couple of sunny days? It depends on the soil type um, and you don't want to be flying in too early because you'll get your crusting. I think, like, it's going to be 40 degrees for the next couple of days. We may get a storm. But it's not taking long to dry up. There'll be some cotton in the ground, I would say, this afternoon and definitely tomorrow. Wow. So you must have had a few people very happy to see you drive back into town with that trailer full of seed. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. I think um, one in particular nearly had a red carpet to roll out.
1: Tommy Palmer from Cotton Grower Services in Kununara speaking to Alice Marshall. Six to one to the markets. And we'll start at the Mount Barker cattle sale, which was held over two days. 2,231 wieners sold yesterday and 846 heads sold at today's trade sale. Tracy Kilner's been there on both days. Hi, Tracy. Can you start with
10: the wiener prices? Heavyweight steers were in demand from feeder buyers while the Eastern States orders pushed prices up 10 to 30 cents on heifer categories and lightweight steers sold to 312 cents a kilo. Wiener steers weighing over 380 kilos returned 250 to 284 cents. Steers weighing between 330 and 380 kilos made from 226 to 282 cents. The lighter steers weighing 280 to 330 kilos sold from 250 to 300 cents and weights under 280 kilos returned 246 to 312 cents a kilo. Weiner heifers weighing over 380 kilos sold for 186 to 226. Weights from 330 to 380 kilos made 160 to 226. Lighter weights between 280 to 330 kilos made from 160 to 272 cents and weights under 280 kilos returned 152 to 226 cents today's trade sale. All categories trended up with demand with a large yarding of processor and trade weight steers selling to 272 cents and heifers up to 208 cents a kilo. A large heavy cow yarding gained 6 cents selling to 184 cents and stores were up 30 cents. While a large yarding of heavy bulls were in demand selling to 214 cents a kilo. Grown steers weighing 500 to 600 kilos made 200 to 234 cents and lighter weights returned 172 to 272 cents a kilo. Grown heifers weighing under 540 kilos made from 140 to 208 cents and the heavier weight heifers sold from 170 to 206 cents a kilo. Heavy cows made from 130 to 184 cents, medium weights from 138 to 166, store cows sold from 80 to 146 cents and heavy bulls gained returning 142 to 214 cents a kilo. This has been Tracy Kilner for Meat and Livestock Australia's National Livestock Reporting Service. Tracy, thank you for going
1: through those details. Four minutes to one. To the wool market, which is down this week, the eastern market indicator down 15 cents to close at 1,171 cents a kilogram clean, and the western market indicator down 5 cents to finish the week on 1,301 cents a kilo clean. Danny Burkett, can you go through the market details?
0: Pretty much a carbon copy of last week. We saw the majority of the falls on the first day through the three centres. Uh, we had some higher passed-in and withdrawn rates through those three centres. If we look at the north, 10% of the Merino fleece wool didn't meet the market, 25% in Melbourne and 22% here in the west. So the vast majority of that was on the first day and that allowed the buyers to come in with a little bit more money on the second day. That reflected in Fremantle over the two days, 17 microns off 30 to close at 17.60, 18s also off 30, closing at 15.70, 19s off 20, 14.05 on the close, 20 microns plus five, 21s plus five, 13.40 and 13.30 on the close, only 10 cents clean apart for the 20 and 21 microns at this stage. Pieces and bellies on the finer end. That gap continued to open in price disparity between the fleece and pieces. That fell another 30. And if we look at the medium um, medium and broader types of pieces and bellies, they fell 10. Big winners for the week. Locks up 40. Last week, they were up 30. That's 70 cents in the fortnight. That's a fantastic direction for that end of the market, which has not seen much for a long time. Crutchings up 20. Stains up 20. Lambs, happy to say, fully firm again. Even the short to medium length type 20. 20 to 30 mil type lambs, fully firm on those gains they had last week. So in general, a, um, a reasonable market for the medium types. Finer wolves uh, have continued to feel the brunt of the market. Danny surprised me. Who was buying this week? No surprises, Belle. Um, if we look at it just in country, we'll go China 81% of the market so far this year and compared to last year, India 6%. Italy 4%, Czech Republic 2%, the balance spread between the rest. If we bring that back to the uh, to the floor here in WA, PJ Morris, 19.5% of the Merino Fleece wool they purchased this week. That's a fairly large chunk in, in anybody's book. TNU, 16%, and Devil Wool exports 11.5%, and Tech Wool trading there in the fourth spot at 10%. Again, just worth mentioning, Tech Wool, they were in the buys for skirtings, oddments, and the crossbred market as well, again, this week.
1: And Danny, let's look ahead to next week. What's in store?
0: We have uh, just shy of 44,500 bars on Tuesday, Wednesday sale at Sydney, Melbourne, and Fremantle. Um, just given we had uh, only 32,33,000 bars offered this week, the exchange rate behaved itself. Let's hope we can get something to spurt something in this market, in particular on those final rules as we walk into next week.
1: Danny, thank you so much. Appreciate that. Danny Burke, going through the wool market details. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover
0: more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.